0: And so if you're going to follow along in your Bible, please open it to uh, Jeremiah 31:14. Just asked Walker to go get my reading glasses. I know that wearing reading glasses makes me look old, but not wearing reading glasses makes me sound stupid. <laughs> but I think I can make my way through uh, this verse. So Job chapter 31 and verse 14 says, What then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Now, if you do have your Bible open, then you can see that this is uh, part of uh, verses 13 through 15. We'll, We'll show you the context. Thank you. It says, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? So when Job says, what then shall I do when God rises up? It is a prospect that uh, causes him to alter the way that he lives caused him to be uh, more compassionate towards his manservant and his maidservant than perhaps he might otherwise have been. I think that the prospect of God's rising up here is not solely a prospect of he may bring judgment. I think it is also the perspective that he may bring reward. I think that both of those ideas are included. In the passages of Scripture that requests that God would rise up, as the second text will show. So the second text is from Isaiah chapter 68, verses 1 through 3. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. So You see, when God arises, it's going to be terror to his enemies, but it's going to be gladness to his friends. The righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Now, both of these texts and many others like them, ask God to arise Assume that there are times in our lives when it feels like God is absent, or God is asleep, or God is in some way inactive. We're not seeing. We're not seeing immediate fulfillment to promises. We're not seeing Im- immediate execution of curses against enemies, and uh, the perception sometimes is the erroneous perception: God is asleep. And so this first point is the perceived inactivity of God. There are times when when it seems like God is not doing anything. There are times when it seems like God is not doing anything in the life of the individual. You probably have felt that way. And so we'll look at some individuals in the Bible who surely felt like God was asleep or in some way was absent. God is Absent in the life of the individual. And then there are times when in the life of a church, it seems like everybody's doing everything that they ought to do, and yet either there is a period of great dryness or in sometimes throughout church history, there have been periods of intense persecution when God's people have been slaughtered like sheep. And then God's people cry out, Lord, where are you? Why don't you, why don't you awaken and come to our deliverance? And so we'll look at some what the Bible has to say uh, regarding God's rising up to the relief of His church. And then there are times when it seems like in a nation God is absent, that He is just allowing everything to go on uh, without any kind of divine interference or divine influence. And then there is at least one major case where it seems like God may have left the entire world to itself. And so we'll look at these these four instances where it appears that God is inactive, asleep, absent, or unconcerned. I'm reminded of the disciples when they were going across the Sea of Galilee and there was a great storm that came down upon them and these fishermen, these brave, hardy fishermen were so afraid that they thought they were going to sink to the bottom of the sea and drown. And so they woke up Jesus and they asked him, Master, we're about to drown. And then they asked him this question Don't you care? Don't you care that we're about to drown? And then Jesus arose and rebuked the winds and the waves. But uh, there's been many a prayer offered by many a mariner that Jesus did not rebuke the winds and the waves. It seemed like God was absent, God was asleep. God was unconcerned. God was inactive. Sometimes it feels like that in your own life. Sometimes it feels like that. surely Joseph felt like that when, as a 17 year old boy endeavoring to follow after the Lord, he goes to his brothers and they hate him so badly that they decide they're going to try to kill their brother. and then one of the brothers speaks up and says, "Well, let's don't kill him let's at least let's at least." Uh, sell him. We can get some profit out of him. Let's don't kill him. And so when there were some traders that came through the area, then they sold him. And uh, then I can just imagine Joseph on his way from Israel down into Egypt over those dry, deserted miles with people who probably couldn't understand a word that he said. I don't know how they had him whether he was tied to a camel or tied on the back of a donkey, or whether they made him walk, but in some way they were keeping watch of him. And I can imagine that 17-year-old Joseph, with tears running down his dusty face, thought to himself, where is God? Why doesn't God arise to help me? And then he goes into Egypt, and he's sold into the house of a man named Potiphar. And I can imagine that Joseph looks around, and he thinks, I'm a slave. Where is God? Where is God? But the Bible has this little sentence, but the Lord was with him. I don't, know how, I don't know how much Joseph felt that, but I can be sure that if it was Jim Orick in that position, that there would be times when I would say, where is God? Why did he allow this to happen to me? And then in that household, he was falsely accused of a crime and got put in prison. And again, I'm sure that Joseph thought, where is God? Why doesn't God rise up to help me? And again, the Bible says, but the Lord Yahweh was with Joseph in prison. But it was years. It was years. Seventeen years old, he's sold into slavery. And it was 13 years later that God arose up and exonerated his servant and exalted him to a place that was beyond his wildest imagination. But there were many years when I'm sure that Joseph felt like God is asleep. Or then the text that I'm preaching from this morning that starts us off in Job chapter 31 and verse 14. Job himself uh, had experienced incredible adversity. It was adversity that had been permitted by God. Satan appears before the Lord and he says, and and God, the Lord God Almighty says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And uh, Satan says, Well, of course, obviously he's going to serve you. Look at what a life you've given him. You've given him vast wealth beyond anyone's imagination. He's got uh, a healthy, cheerful family. No wonder he serves you. Anybody would serve you that you treat that way. And so the Lord Yahweh says to him, You can take it all away, but don't touch his life. And so in a single day, all of his wealth was taken away and all of his children died. And at the end of that day, Job's wife came out and said, Why do you still maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job at this point speaks like a man full of faith. And he says, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then Satan comes before Yahweh again. And Yahweh says, Well, have you considered Job? I let you take away all of his wealth and all of his family. But he maintains his integrity. And Satan says, A man will give everything he has for his health. Take away his health. Let me take away his health. And then let's see what he does. And so the Lord God says, you can do it. He takes away his health. And Job is covered with boils and he is so miserable that uh, he's just sitting on top of an ash heap, uh, scraping himself, uh, trying to relieve the, the itch and the pain that he's experiencing, scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery. And then to add insult to injury, his wife comes out and says, why don't you just curse God and die? Just get it all over with. And uh, then the book of Job unfolds how that Job, after that original bright lightning gleam of faith, the Lord has given us many good things. Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not also receive evil? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. That bright gleam of faith is not so apparent through the next 40 chapters of the book of Job. And he's complaining. And he says, why is this happening to me? And his three friends come to comfort him and say, well, it's because you were unkind to people. It's because you've done something to deserve this. Not not all of this would have happened to you unless you had done something to deserve it. And Job just says, no, I, I maintain my integrity. And in my own text... The text that we're looking at this morning, he says, people who who were servants in my household, I listened to them, I took care of them, because I know that there is a time coming when God is going to rise up. And How can I answer God if I have treated people in my household disrespectfully and not provided for them in the way that a master ought to provide for the servants in his household? What then shall I do when God rises up? But there are no doubt about it, many, many days in Job's misery when he thought, where is God? God may eventually rise up, but where is He now? He's asleep. He's inactive. He's dead. Something's going on, that God is not here right now. And then as one of our scripture readings, I read from we're still considering how that sometimes in the life of individuals, God seems like he is, he is absent. We consider Joseph, considered Job. And now let's consider that man Asaph who wrote Psalm 73. Well, I read a few verses to you from Psalm 73 as our first scripture reading. And in Psalm 73, Asaph begins by saying, why is it that it's only wicked people who have all the good stuff? Their their families are healthy. They've got wealth. They're surrounded with people who, who admire them. And these these wicked people, their their tongue struts throughout the earth. They wear pride like a necklace. They say, "Well, how does God know?" They're not showing any reverence to you at all. God, why is it that you give bad people so many good things, and then you treat me like dirt? Surely in vain I have. Washed my hands in innocence every morning. And he is just having himself a real pity party. I'm, I, I, I probably would feel the same way. Perhaps you felt that way too. Why is, it, why is it that people who are not following after God have so many good things? Just at the time when... A notoriously wicked pop star gave birth to a child. One of my friends gave birth to a child who had Down syndrome. And she asked her husband bitterly, Why is it that this pop star, this vulgar, wicked pop star, can have a healthy baby? And God sends us a little child with Down syndrome. Now, the years have passed, and they are delight, absolutely delighted with that little child. She's grown into a, a wonderful, wonderful young lady. Uh, uh, but at the time when her faith was weak, the wife said bitterly, Why is it that the wicked people are able to have babies after they've had multiple abortions? Why can she have a healthy baby? And why am I given a child with mental challenges? That's the way Asaph felt, and he felt that way until he went into the house of God. And when he went into the house of God, he was reminded of some things that altered his perspective and altered his value system. And that's just the part that I read to you. That he goes into the house of God, and there he remembers, they might have good things in their hands, but you have set their feet in slippery places. One day you're going to wake up, and like a dream... You're going to despise them as fantasies. It just so happens that last night, I had a really bad dream. And it was one of those dreams where I was was calling out. I, I needed to get up, and I couldn't get up, and something bad was about to happen, and I'm struggling to get up, and then I wake up. Ah, it's just a dream. Go back to sleep. With all the turmoil and all the fuss and all the all the arrogance that the, the wicked display, one of these days God is going to wake up, Asaph says, and then he's going to despise them as fantasies. Now what about you? Your your individual life, you Christian, are there times when you feel like God is asleep, God is inactive? God is certainly not on our timetable, but be sure of this, there will come a time when God will rise up. And what about you, lost person? Are you living as if God will never rise up? Last month, well no, actually it was in December, in Indonesia there was a very active volcano that erupted. It hadn't erupted for some time and people were hiking on this mountain. And when the When the volcano blew, then it killed many of these hikers, and uh, the world quickly loses interest in such things, and so the only news reports that I have seen are the news reports that came out just immediately after it happened. So I don't know the final tally of of how many people were killed, but the principle that I have brought it up as an illustration is they knew that it was a volcano. Volcano. But they were still hiking on the volcano for pleasure, and then the volcano awoke. And that, I think, is a parallel for the way that some of you are living. You're hiking on God's world. You're hiking on an active volcano, and it will awake. It may not be in this life, but sometime it will awake And then hear Job's question. Let it echo in your hearts. May God put barbs on it so that you cannot get it out of your mind. What then shall I do when God rises up? What am I going to do when God rises up? When God looks at my life, when God looks at the way that I've lived, when God looks at the truth that I have spurned, when God looks at the warnings that I've turned away from, what am I going to do when God rises up? Not only is God seemingly absent or asleep in the lives of individuals, but there are times when in the life of a church, it seems like God is asleep. And sometimes churches will go along doing the right thing for years and years, and and the church down the road that is uh, engaged in um, unbiblical practices just seems to grow and to grow, and there are more people, and you you drive past and the parking lot is full and you watch on TV and you see someone who is uh, not preaching the gospel and not following after God. In fact, he's preaching a false gospel and he's filling, he's filling a stadium like church. And you say, why, why is this? This doesn't seem right. Why does God allow his people sometimes not only to flounder, but even to be persecuted by the world? Now, thank God we are not living in a time of persecution. We should take advantage of it. But you don't have to read very much in church history to see some heart-rending stories about people who were strongly persecuted because they were following after the Lord. But Jesus has warned us, if they treated me, your teacher, like this, then they'll treat your pupil like this. The student is not greater than his master. If they listen to me, they'll listen to you. But they haven't listened to me, and so they won't listen to you. I don't think that being small and floundering is necessarily a sign of orthodoxy. I'm so thankful for the Lord's blessing on us in recent days and for the growth that we're seeing and we're, we're having to give announcements about where people are going to park, and where people are going to sit, and may the Lord continue to increase, and, and we should just be overflowing with thanksgiving, because I'll tell you, I'm 63 years old, and I've been in ministry since I was 17, and I've never been associated with a church where God is doing what He's doing at Bullet Lick right now. Amen. And so, it's not just numbers, it's, it's so many blessings that the Lord is blessing us with, and, and sometimes I, I stand up here and I look over this congregation and I just think, is this really happening? Is God really doing this at this little bitty church at the bottom of the hill? Is God really using this church the way that he is? And, and what a blessing it is. But, but there have been times when you, when I have been affiliated with churches, this church, when it just seems like for months and for years, just kind of puttering along, holding the line. A person gets saved every once in a while. A person joins every once in a while. And we sing, There shall be showers of blessing. Mercy drops round us are falling, but for the showers we plead. Well, in Psalm 44, we read about a time when God's people felt like, Lord, we've been doing the right thing, but still we are not enjoying your blessing. Most of the time in the history of Israel, They couldn't say we've been doing the right thing and you still are asleep. But in Psalm 44, you'll see if you read the whole psalm, the psalmist is saying, we've heard about what you used to do in the old days. How you used to go out with our armies and how you blessed the people. And now you're letting, it's quite to the contrary. And we haven't done anything wrong this time. And so the psalm concludes with this. Awake! Awake! God, you seem like you're asleep. Why are you sleeping? Awake, why are you sleeping, O oh, Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And so God's, God's poor, persecuted, neglected, seemingly neglected people have for thousands of years sometimes been praying this, Lord, wake up. Wake up and reward your people and bless and protect your people. Deliver us from our enemies. And sometimes, like in the life of Joseph, During our lifetime, we see the Lord wake up and and send the blessings that we have longed for. Sometimes in our own lifetime, the Lord wakes up and brings a, a judgment into our lives that snaps us to attention and causes us to turn away from our rebellious, sinful ways against the Lord and to turn to Him seeking mercy. Many of you can give testimony to times that God rose up in your life and made you miserable. But out of that misery came your faith in Jesus Christ. So sometimes in the life of individuals, sometimes in the life of God's people, his people Israel, his churches is on earth now, it seems like God is absent. Sometimes in the in the life of a nation, it seems like the Lord blesses and prospers a nation for a while and then And then what? We look at some of the wickedness that is going on in our our country. And we say, how can the Lord be so patient with all of the wickedness that is rampant in our land? All of the, the disregard for life, the disregard for God's standards of righteousness. How can God continue to withhold his judgment on the United States of America? Well, that was the question that Habakkuk asked that was our first or our second scripture reading. Habakkuk, why are you why are you silent? Why are you not uh, governing our nation so that we pursue after righteousness? And then God says, "I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to rise up." And it was a surprising means through which He arose up. It was through using a, a nation that was worse than the Israelites that He He punished Israel, but He did rise up. And then there are times when just in the history of the world, and I told you that there is one thing in particular that uh, raises questions, and that is, why is Jesus taking so long to come back? Well, this, this very question, in fact, was asked even in the first century. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to the book of, uh, is it First Peter or 2 Peter? 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and this very question is asked, why is it that Jesus is taking so long to come back? 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to read 10 verses here, so beginning with verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So, first The first answer that is given is God knows how, it it may take a long time, but God knows how to rise up and bring reward and bring judgment when he does. Now, I know it seems like a long time to you, but just remember that God's perspective on time is not the same as ours. And then here's another answer. Why is the Lord taking so long the Lord Jesus to come back? Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there's a good answer. There's a good answer, for, there's a good answer for you. What if the Lord had come back in 1974, the year before I was converted? Then I would be in hell right now. What if the Lord had come back before you were converted, then you would be suffering the judgment of God. God is long-suffering towards you. But the the long-suffering is not going to last forever. Those of you who are not prepared to welcome the Lord, the Lord's return with joy and gladness, what are you going to do when God rises up? What are you going to do when God's patience is over? And when the day of grace, the sun has set on the day of grace. You'll be enveloped in everlasting night. So why is is it that Jesus has not come back? It it seems like he's, he's forgotten. Where is the promise of his coming? Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief not the only time in the Bible that Jesus' return is described as coming like a thief. Unexpected. You're not planning on a thief to come. You've kind of maybe gotten lax about locking your doors. You've kind of gotten lax about your security measures. Last night we uh, had a birthday dinner at our house. Naomi turned 22 this past week. And uh, so... I asked uh, everyone city, sitting at the table, what's a good illustration for people who uh, start you know, playing around casually with things that are very dangerous? Uh, start, start plucking the whiskers off of a lion that they think is dead, that sort of thing. What are some examples of that? And my son-in-law, Mark, they're not here today because, uh, because Annie is sick. The baby is sick. But he said, well, when I was serving in Afghanistan, he was, he was a leader of a group of men. He said, after being there for a couple of months searching for improvised explo- explosive devices, IEDs, after k- two months of looking for IEDs, They became casual and careless. And I kept wanting to urge upon them. And thankfully, this story does not end with somebody getting blown up. But that was the example that he gave. There are IEDs all over the place. And we just kind of get casual. We hear about somebody dying young. We hear about somebody dying in a car crash. And we just think, I'm never going to step on that IED. Or I know that this is a a region that is one day going to be blown up. But it's not going to happen today. The volcano is not going to erupt today. Jesus says, I'm going to come like a thief. I'm going to explode like a dormant volcano. One day you'll put your, your foot where you thought you could safely put your foot. And you'll be in eternity. I'll come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed so we might look at the world and say well it sure does look like Jesus is asleep he's forgot to come back no he's patient don't act presumptuously with his patience Now, the second part of this sermon is much more brief than the first part. In the first part, we looked at Job 31, 14. What then shall I do when God rises up? Psalm 68, 1 through 3 asserts, God shall arise. Psalm 68, 1 through 3. By the time the ESV was translated in the last 20, 25 years, the word shall had largely dropped out of the English language. There are complicated rules that govern when you ought to use shall and when you ought to use will. But no one remembers them. And uh, so we have just started saying, well, just it's, don't use shall at all, except in some stock phrases like we shall overcome or some stock questions like shall I come Tuesday instead of will I come Tuesday. Uh, I, I find those rules very interesting. But uh, most people don't. But the point that I'm making right here is that uh, the fact that the English stylists who were reviewing the translation let the shall stand in Psalm 68.1. It's not the only shall. There are also a couple of more shalls in verse 3. And they let it stand here because it indicates surety certainty. God shall arise. There's no question about it. Not we hope God will one day arise. God shall arise. And then there will be consequences for his foes and there will be consequences for his friends. And those are briefly explained here in Psalm 68, 1 through 3. When God arises, what will happen to his enemies? His enemies shall be scattered and those who hate him shall flee before him. And then here are two word pictures to help us understand what it is like. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. This week there's been some dirt hauling going on in my neighborhood, and dump trucks full of dirt have been taking, taking and dumping it in a neighbor's yard. And I was watching one of those dump trucks day before yesterday, and as he stepped on the gas... As he was going up the hill by my house, out comes this great cloud of thick black smoke out of his exhaust pipes. Just boom! All this black smoke comes out. It didn't just stay there, though. Within just a few seconds, it was dissipated. You didn't even know that the smoke had been there. How quickly it dissipates. When God arises, that's how it's going to be for his enemies. it will be driven away like smoke. Or verse 2, also the other word picture, as wax melts before fire. Now some of us have fires in our house, but we don't fool with candles much anymore. But if you put a candle very close to the fire, it will melt. Probably all of you have at one time or another played with uh, a candle or, or something and put it close to the fire and just watched how that it just... It just melts, and pretty soon there's nothing left. That's what's going to happen when God arises, His enemies, the consequences for His enemies. As smoke is driven away, so you will drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But there will be blessings that come upon His friends, and that's described in verse 3. But the righteous shall, there they left the shall, The righteous shall be glad, no doubt about it, the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. Do you know what the word exult means? It's your jumping around with joy. It's not just, hey, that's nice. I'm not going to demonstrate for you. But it's jumping around. It's jumping around with excitement and with joy they shall be, there's that shall, they shall be jubilant with joy. I like that. Jubilant with joy. That's, what's going, that's what it's going to be for God's people. When God arises, He shall arise. His enemies will be scattered, but His friends are going to be jubilant with joy. Now, there are several ways that God's arising and the certainty of his arising ought to affect us. So Job gives us one, it ought to help us to be compassionate and kind to people. That's the way Job used it in Job 38 or Job 31. He said, I, I was kind to my men servants and my maid servants because I knew that one day God is going to arise. And what would I do if I had to stand before God after having been mean? To the people who are under my responsibility. So here the sermon is contiguous with my sermon last week on blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Be merciful to people. What what will you say when God arises if you have been mean and unkind and thoughtless and inconsiderate and unconcerned? What will you say? In James chapter 5, James says... Do not grumble with each other, brothers. The judge is standing at the door. And I just think, oh man. James had a perfect brother, the Lord Jesus. But James and Judas and Simon and the other brother whose name I can't remember right now, they got into it with each other. And uh, I can just imagine that there were times when James and his brothers were into it, and they were fussing and fighting, and just, just getting ready to have a donnybrook on the other side of the door. And mom or dad comes up and says, "Hey, boys, what's going on in there?" Uh, "Nothing, sir. What's all that ruckus?" You remember times like that. The judge is standing at the door. You better behave yourself. That's what James says. Another way that uh, the rising up of God, the pending certain rising up of God ought to affect us is that it ought to make us patient. God will arise. God will set all things right. There is nothing that is whispered in the inner rooms that will not be proclaimed from the housetops. If you have been maliciously accused... (coughs) If you have been falsely fired from your job because you stood for righteousness, God shall arise. God shall arise. On the other hand, if you have surreptitiously and sneakily gotten away with something and you think that nobody knows, God shall arise. What then shall I say when God arises? will ought to affect us as we look forward to the arisings that will happen, sometimes in time, sometimes at the end of time, when the Lord Jesus Christ will come and reward his servants and bring judgment upon his enemies. Now I want to conclude with just a sentence or two, with a retrospect. A retrospect on a rising of God. So, Most of the time through this sermon, I've been talking about a prospective rising of God. What shall I do when God arises in the future? But now I want to direct your attention to a rising that took place in the past. And it was a literal rising, not a figurative rising. It was a literal rising when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead... It was an indescribably important event in the history of redemption. God was saying, by rising Jesus from the dead, the floodgates of mercy are now thrown open. The arms of grace are flung open wide. Sometimes we sing one of my favorite songs, On the Mount of Crucifixion Fountains opened deep and wide And through the floodgates of God's mercy Came a vast and gracious tide Grace and love like mighty rivers Poured incessant from above When God's peace and perfect justice Kissed a guilty world in love That rising that God there's no rising to compare with it in all the in all the the judgmental risings and in all the gracious risings that we have ever seen from god and the trinity there's none to compare with christ's rising from the dead and that rising from the dead as you look back upon it can tell you there's a hope that i can be at peace with god in fact that is in fact what the bible says in Romans chapter 4, at the very end of Romans chapter 4, in the beginning of Romans chapter 5. Hear these words from Romans chapter 4 and verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we often think of the crucifixion as being the sole means by which we are reconciled to God. But this verse of scripture teaches us that is also through the resurrection. That when He was raised from the dead, we were justified. Now, justified is a theological word that means two things. It means that God has completely erased all of our sins. That's one thing. And the second thing is that He has credited us with a righteousness that pleases Him. That righteousness was the righteousness that Jesus lived out during the days of His incarnation. A perfect human righteousness. And so, when we turn our eyes away from our sin, away from our rebellion against God, and we turn our eyes to Jesus crucified and Jesus rising from the dead, and we receive this risen Christ as our Lord and Savior, then here's what the Lord says If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so that's the message of salvation with which I conclude this sermon. Turn your eyes back to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let that that future rising fill you with fear. But a fear that makes you turn your eyes back to that past rising that says, here's my hope. Here's the way that I can be right with God. If God justifies sinners through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, O Lord, justify me through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jim, Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.